Hello and welcome to UN Catch-Up, Dateline Geneva, your weekly review of international news from the United Nations. I'm Daniel Johnson and in this week's show, top stories from the UN covering new coronavirus developments and Myanmar at the Human Rights Council. We'll also hear how COVID-19 has had a profound impact on cancer care everywhere from a World Health Organization expert who explains what that has meant for sufferers and doctors grappling with a treatment trade-off and questions over vaccination. And not forgetting piercing insight from regular guests Solange Berhotegui-Cortez and Alpha Diallo. Thanks for listening. COVID-19 has affected cancer care in all countries, rich and poor. So what should the advice be to cancer patients who still need diagnosing, treatment and potentially a coronavirus vaccine too? To get some answers and to highlight how health authorities have been ensuring continuity of care, I've been speaking to Dr Andre Ilbawi from the World Health Organization's Department of Non-Communicable Diseases in Geneva. The impact of COVID on cancer care has been profound because it has impacted all dimensions of cancer control, from diagnosis to survivorship care. And in that regard, it has been a high impact and unfortunately very challenging time for the most vulnerable cancer patients that we see. This is worldwide, is it, in rich and poor countries? We see this impact in both high-income countries and in lower- and middle-income countries. Is it the case that health authorities have scaled back their cancer care after reports that COVID-19 outcomes are significantly worse among patients with cancer? Most governments are avoiding this concept of let's reduce cancer care because we know cancer is a time-sensitive disease. If we, in fact, delay cancer care, either because of a government order or because of a patient choice or because of a situation in quarantine, the consequences can be detrimental. And for this reason, we've seen governments respond favorably to the extent that they are encouraging cancer patients to pursue care. Right. So let's put ourselves in a patient's shoes, a cancer patient's shoes. So they should carry on going to the hospital, even though they might have heard somewhere that if they catch COVID, they have a greater chance of being at risk. Is that right? That is correct. The first starting point, as you rightly point out, is the understanding that Some cancer patients are at higher risk for COVID-related disability or death if they contract the virus. But at the same time, because it has to do with immunosuppression, the exact mechanism for which the virus is causing this increased risk of death for the cancer population, we are still trying to understand from a disease perspective. But one of the primary drivers is a weakened immune system and a likelihood that the virus will take a greater hold, spread more rapidly within the body, and by extent, cause greater damage. That is the hypothesis. But we are also trying to understand which cancer patients are at greatest risk, because not all cancer patients are experiencing the potential harm of COVID and cancer to the same extent. For example, we have noted that some cancer patients that have what we call blood cancers or hematologic cancers are those that are experiencing greater risk as compared to solid or the organ-based cancers like breast or colorectal that may be at lower risk. But the exact likelihood that each cancer type incurs a greater risk is something that, again, we don't have a clear understanding because the data are still not well available for us to understand who is at greatest risk. The general message, though, is we know as a general group that cancer patients are experiencing greater disability and death from covid And because of this, there is a trade-off that many cancer patients are making, sometimes in isolation, but importantly, in a discussion with their healthcare provider to understand what is the right course of action for treatment. So 
If you're a cancer specialist, an oncologist, it must be very difficult for you because COVID has meant that you've had to change your approach in the sense that you're still needing to catch these cancers early, but you also have to give the palliative care to those whose cancers cannot be cured. It is a very challenging time for patients, and we should think about that first and foremost. But also, it has been a very challenging time for cancer providers because they are also in a difficult trade-off where the options that they have, whether it is the timing of surgery, the number of cycles of chemotherapy, or the availability of medicines, including dosing for radiotherapy, all of these decisions are needing to be made by cancer providers and their patients in a very intimate, yet also a very challenging discussion that is happening in clinics around the world. Could you maybe give some advice from the World Health Organization on which of these COVID vaccines are best for cancer patients to take, or is it just too soon to say? This is unfortunately too soon to say, but it is an important discussion that cancer patients should take on with their providers because there are some emerging studies that are helping us understand, is there increased risk for cancer patients to take the vaccine? The suspicion is that cancer patients will be, in fact, benefiting from access to vaccines rather than being harmed. We have regulatory authorities around the world that are actively following this, and we, of course, at WHO are doing the same. Thank you. Maybe you could give me an idea about some countries who've managed to work with COVID and find solutions to getting treatment to cancer sufferers more quickly than others. Yeah, this is an area where we've been working hard with governments, with stakeholders to understand these types of responses or mitigation strategies. Cancer has not been included as a priority mitigation strategy as part of essential health services. But this is changing. As an example, we've seen in the Netherlands, they've taken on an approach in which there has been outreach to the cancer community, to the general public to say, if you have any high risk symptoms, please come to a clinic, please report your symptoms to a provider. And this could be again in a clinic or using an innovative approach like telemedicine. This type of encouragement to the general public has in fact reduced the delays that we've seen that are also very common around the world. Another best practice that we're seeing is a strong response from civil society. So advocacy organizations, hospitals, or broader communities are providing cancer patients with a focal person to say, here's how we can help you continue with your therapy. We can help you get to the clinic rather than take public transportation and increase the potential risk of exposure. We'll have someone come to your house and pick you up and drive you to the hospital. And these types of approaches, in fact, can also reduce potential harm to cancer patients. Dr. Andre Ilbawi from the World Health Organization in Geneva there. Thanks to him. You can hear the longer version of that interview on UN News forward slash audio hub. Now, the news. The UN Human Rights Council debated a call on Friday for the immediate release of Myanmar's democratically elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, along with other senior officials, in a special session at the Geneva-based Council, which is the preeminent forum for international rights issues. The United Kingdom and European Union presented a draft resolution condemning last week's military takeover. The draft text urges the lifting of restrictions on the internet and unimpeded humanitarian access. Here's Nada Al-Nashif, Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights. The indiscriminate use of lethal or less than lethal weapons against peaceful protesters is unacceptable. More violence against Myanmar's people will only compound the illegitimacy of the coup and the culpability of its leaders. 
Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Situation in Myanmar, Thomas Andrews, also urged the international community not to recognise the country's military leaders. Myanmar's ambassador, Myint Tu, responded by underscoring his country's commitment to democratic values and justified the military's intervention as necessary. A constellation of sometimes debilitating symptoms among people who've recovered from COVID-19 is set to impact on global health systems. That's the message from the World Health Organization, WHO, on Friday, which said that post-COVID-19 condition can occur after the acute illness has passed. Symptoms include neurological and physical problems, and these have prevented sufferers from returning to work, occurring up to six months after the initial recovery period, said Dr Janet Diaz, head of healthcare readiness at the UN agency. Although comprehensive data is not yet available, Dr Diaz insisted that these symptoms were real. The numbers, even if it's, uh, we don't know how, how common it is or how uncommon it is, but the numbers just by the magnitude of the pandemic will impact health systems. Staying with COVID-19, a World Health Organization expert panel has countered concerns over the efficacy of the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine and urged countries to use it, including those where variants have surfaced. The development comes after a study in South Africa indicated that the AstraZeneca jab provided little protection against a coronavirus variant among older people. At a press conference in Geneva on Wednesday, the Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization, or SAGE, said that the study's findings were inconclusive. Dr. Kate O'Brien, head of immunization, at the UN Health Agency explained that the AstraZeneca inoculation, like other vaccines, worked best on the poorest patients. The highest response is against the most severe disease and then somewhat lower efficacy for moderate and then further down for mild disease. So given only evidence on mild and moderate disease, we would expect that whatever the efficacy is, it would be higher against severe disease than, than mild and moderate. The week's headlines there. Before that, Dr. Andre Ilbawi from the World Health Organization's Non-Communicable Diseases Department. Solange Behotege Cortez and Alfa Diallo from the Information Service at UN Geneva. Hello to you both and thanks for joining me to wrap up the show. I don't know about you, but what struck me was the frankness of Dr. Ilbawi's comments that there's this really impossible decision for doctors and patients about the need to treat cancer sufferers quickly, knowing that it would be a wise idea to keep them well away from any potential contact with COVID-19. Alpha, what are your main takeaways from the interview with Dr. Ilbawi just now? Thank you, Dan. For me, what was clear was the big impact of COVID-19 on cancer care globally in rich and developing countries. This is not surprising given the fact that early in the pandemic, the World Health Organization found that in 122 out of 163 countries, non-communicable disease services had been disrupted. WHO survey have found that 50% of governments have had cancer services partially or completely disrupted because of the pandemic. And for some countries, this means shortage of cancer drugs. Many have seen a significant drop in new cancer diagnoses, even in wealthy countries. Alpha, you would also like to highlight another World Health Organization study, this time on breast cancer in Africa and, in fact, the wider impacts of deaths from breast cancer in sub-Saharan Africa. Yes, Dan, the WHO International Agency for Research on Cancer based in Lyon reports that in sub-Saharan Africa, breast cancer is the first or second most common cause of cancer death in women in most countries of the region. Even more worrying, the study shows that the number of children who are often because of 
breast cancer in sub-Saharan Africa is greater than the number of deaths from breast cancer there. So almost 800 breast cancer deaths in four sub-Saharan countries produce almost 1,000 orphans. This finding underlines urgent need for sustained action to improve breast cancer survival in this region. Thank you, Alpha, for the insight on breast cancer. And Dr. Ilbawi also talking about the need to overcome cervical cancer and get everyone vaccinated as well, boys and girls. So thank you for that, Alpha. Over to you, Solange. What did you think about what Dr. Ilbawi was saying? Your interview with Dr. Andre Ilbawi made me think about the notion of time. We know that the earlier the cancer is detected, the more likely the patient is to survive. But we also know thanks to the World Health Organization data, that because of the pandemic, an additional 50,000 people are missing a cancer diagnosis and others are having their appointments disrupted. The question of time is crucial. Either you're on time or you are too late. And this will have an impact on the total number of cancer deaths in coming years. Someone told me that we are in the middle of a crossroad which is a nice way of saying crisis. Cancer is also a leading cause of death for children and adolescents, with an estimated 400,000 children diagnosed with cancer each year. On that, I would like to mention the book of a former UN colleague, Muriel Sibilia, Côté Nuit, Côté Soleil, in which she collects testimonies of 10 children with cancer between 3 and 18 years old. For many of them, Paolo, Audrey, Jeremy, Alice, Océane, the victory against the disease has led them to look at the future with optimism and realism, to develop new projects, to feel that they have not survived for nothing. Anyway, in the end, time always catches up with us. Goodness me, Solange, how can anybody follow that? Time always catches up with us. So that's it for this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva, but we will be back next week. Thank you to guests Solange behotegui Cotas and Alpha Diallo for your precious thoughts once again, and to Justine Bryce, who's behind the scenes keeping everything going on air once our mics have been turned off. Thank you, listeners, as well. We really are so happy to have you with us. We hope that you've enjoyed the show wherever you are, and we would like to catch you next time. But before we do, I can see Alpha just wants to quickly uh, add something finally. Go ahead, Alpha. Thank you, Dan. With a little advance, happy World Radio Day, as it's celebrated on 13 February each year. It's Saturday. It's Saturday. Also, a good reminder for Valentine's, if you haven't thought about that as well, on the 14th. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. À la prochaine.